Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to the 10th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. I'm your host, Laura Federuso. My guests today are Dr. Lillian fritz Leyland from the biology department. She's an assistant professor of biology, uh, originally from Seattle, but also lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for about 20 years. She got her PhD in molecular and cell biology from UC Berkeley, and her research explores how cells move and how the complex behavior of cells has evolved. Also joining today as a guest is Dr. Paul Katz, who is a professor of biology and the director of neurosciences. Um, he's originally from New York, but spent the last 20 years at Georgia State University in Atlanta. He got his PhD from Cornell University in neurobiology, and um, his research focuses on how neural circuits in sea slugs generate behavior and how those circuits evolved. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thank you. And Lil. Thanks. Um, and joining as my guest co-host today is comedian Trisha D'Onofrio. <laughs> oh my gosh, I said it wrong again. It's okay. D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio. Yeah, From Middleton Town, Connecticut. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Trisha. Anytime. I'm so honored you asked. <laughs> um, so I think we're going to start with Lil. Um, do you want to just go ahead and tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, so I'm interested in how cells move. Um, I think one of the things that really drives me is actually just watching. I like to observe and, and watch. And um, so I fell in love with watching cells move. Um, the behaviors they um, they show are remarkably human-like. Um, I watch single-cell organisms move. Um, and you can see them interacting with each other um, and going places. And um, I think it's really... Uh, fun to watch. So that's what got me started, and I like thinking about um, how cell movement um, plays out in terms of uh, lives of single-celled organisms. Um, and single-celled organisms actually do most of the same things we do, right? So they eat, uh, they find, often find mates, uh, they evade predators, um, they hunt. Uh, so yeah, I'm interested in where those behaviors came from. Okay. They go on dates. It's so <laughs> romantic. It is romantic, actually. You don't need a lot of cells to have a nice date. <laughs> <laughs> Does it ever feel like you're watching a soap opera? Um, <laughs> so I've been watching these behaviors of uh, this uh, single-cell organism right now, and I don't exactly know what they're doing, but I watch individual cells interact with each other. Um, and these cells have flagella, and they'll, they'll uh, sort of circle each other and touch each other with their flagella, and it, it is very evocative. Ooh, ooh la la. <laughs> <laughs> so what are, do you focus on a specific organism or do you change which kind of organism you're looking at and write about different, you know, like what, can you yeah, dive into some details on that maybe? Yeah, so uh, I studied for my grad work uh, a single cell organism that can switch from a crawling form to a swimming form oh, um, cool. called Nyclaria. And so I still study that one. Uh, but more recently I've also been working on a fungus uh, that, that is known for a long time to be able to swim. Uh, also with a flagellum, which is like a like a sperm tail, um, and recently, uh, just based on looking at its genome, I predicted that it could also crawl uh, like an amoeba, like a, across solid surfaces, um, and it turns out it can. Um, and so I'm trying to understand why why it might be crawling and what it's doing for the organism. Wow. So, <clears throat> w w have you had any kind of like discoveries of like why certain things move the way they do, or yeah? Yeah, so, I mean, it turns out that cell movement um, is really diverse, and there's a lot of different mechanisms cells can move uh, using. Um, like, basically any sort of uh, concept you can come up with for movement, uh, I bet there's a cell that can do it. Um, so cells will swim with sperm tails, and they'll crawl like amoebae, but other types of cells um, assemble complex structures that are like paddles, and will paddle through the water. Um, other organisms will basically lay out like molecular train tracks and pull themselves along them. Um, there's some cells are thought to move with things like grappling hooks, like they shoot it out and then they pull themselves forward. Um, wow. So there's a huge amount of diversity um, out there. And so I'm interested in um, a couple different forms, but one of them has to do with crawling like amoeba across surfaces. Um, and it turns out that even that one sort of style uh, has a lot of diversity. And it's probably evolved multiple times. Huh. Is 
Do you think the ones that can do the grappling hook are more ripped than the other ones? <laughs> more ripped? Like more like strong? Uh, so, I mean, they have like, they are, uh, the organisms that I study are single cell. Mm -hmm. um, and so one way to think about that would be to try to calculate how much energy it takes to move. Um, and maybe mm -hmm. you could compare uh, organisms based on the, like the, the energy it takes per unit movement and ones that use a lot more energy to move the same. You could sort of think of them maybe as stronger or maybe they're just less efficient. I don't know. That makes sense. I wonder if any of them can move like really easily, but they choose to just kind of be really lazy, like a couch potato. Well, the <laughs> organisms I work with actually do. So when they have a lot of food, they're kind of like couch potatoes. And actually oh. their shape changes and they get like, like a round pancake. Uh, oh. And then when they start to starve, uh, they actually uh, change shape and they become much more dynamic and motile. Wow. Okay, That's so cool. this uh, this personification <laughs> analogy is like pretty, it plays out pretty well. Yeah, it's actually a good one. I should be a scientist. <laughs> so are you taking videos of their movement mm -hmm. or are you like taking systematic measurements of it? Like what is the process of like, what are you actually documenting? Yeah, so uh, a bunch of different things yeah. and it depends on what particular question. Okay. Um, so one question is what are the shapes um, that cells make? Mm -hmm. um, and Actually, to, to really quantitate that on a population level, it makes sense to, to fix cells and take snapshots oh, uh, because okay. all of the structures that I study um, are largely ephemeral. So they, they, the process of building and disassembling these structures is actually what gives rise to movement. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one way. But you can also look at individual cells over time and get an idea of the dynamics uh, and the speed of assembly of these structures. How do you freeze them? Like, how do you... Do you like physically freeze them like they're just in cold or? So that's one way to do it. But okay. um, I actually use a crosslinker. So you can think of it sort of like hairspray uh, oh. that like glues <laughs> the cells in one spot. And it's like it's like a hairspray that glues all the molecules together. So it freezes them in place. And this is really nice because then you can do uh, specialized treatments that help you uh, visualize individual molecules inside mm. um, and kind of see where they were at that moment. So kind of the most intense game of red light, green light you've ever played in your yeah. life. <laughs> You're like red light forever. Right. We're just going to really center. analyze yeah. this moment. I guess it's like green light hairspray. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So, so does this play into how cells have evolved? Is that kind of part of the story? Here? So one of the things that's I, I find really... Uh, difficult to think about is that these the structures that these cells use to move, um, they're built on these polymer networks uh, that cells actually use for a lot of different purposes. Um, these same polymer networks are also involved in uh, cell division or uh, cytokinesis, uh, breaking two cells, uh, one cell into two. Um, they're used for, for taking stuff up from the environment in a process called endocytosis. Um, and so these complex networks um, are used by cells for a lot of different things that require sort of dynamic um, turnover of structures. Um, and so one of the things I'm interested in thinking about is how cells are adapting these dynamic polymer networks for movement um, and what makes these polymer networks for movement different than the polymer networks that are used for other processes. Okay. So these are polymer networks that exist within the cell themselves? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't, I, I don't know much about cell biology, yeah. obviously, yeah. so this is going to be like maybe very 101, but so what... Is it polymer, is that the same as like polymers we think of as like plastics or is, that, is there an important distinction here? Um, I mean, I think they're similar enough that it's a good, it's a good reference mm -hmm. uh, to think about it. Okay. Um, but I mean, if you think about cells, cells often require some sort of structure. Okay. Um, and so some cells put their structure on the outside, like a cell wall, like a lot of bacteria do, plant cells do, um, many fungi do. Um, but another way to do this is to put your structure uh, right on the inside of the cell. Um, so you can have like like a cell membrane sort of defines what's inside the cell versus the outside. Okay. Um, and so some cells put a structure right on the outside of that, like a cell wall, and other cells put the structure right on the inside. Um, and so the cells I study put it right on the inside, uh, which is nice because then if you if you change um, the shape of these polymers, it actually changes your cell shape. Oh. It's from, you know, and so the then inside. there's a membrane around that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so they're like the more vulnerable. Are they more vulnerable because they put those inside or? I don't know why I was thinking of it as like armor if it's on the outside, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably depends on the organism, okay. uh, but I do know that the organisms that I work with that um, this fungus uh, that I've been studying transitions between not having a cell wall and, and having a cell wall. 
Um, and when it doesn't have a cell wall, it is easier to sort of break it open. Oh, okay. Why don't humans have cell walls? Like, I know plant cells have them. Mm-hmm. I know animal cells don't. Seems like we need it more. I mean, we wear clothes. We're in danger than plants <laughs> we, we, are. we don't have cell walls. We don't. No. Our cells have no wall. That's right. But, but why? But your cells... Oh. Well, I mean, if we had cell walls, we'd be pretty rigid. Mm-hmm. You don't see plants walking around the way we do. That's oh, true. So okay. we need it for flexibility. How could we do gymnastics? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know why I can't. I mean, I guess I think of some animals, I mean, a, a, cell, a cell wall, right, is around an individual cell, but some animals have exoskeletons, right, which you can th- mm. kind of think of like on a, a broader scale, like a, kind of like a cell wall. Yeah, and they have joints, but then that means they can only tur- move at those joints. Mm-hmm. Same as us, though, really. Mm-hmm. We have joints, too. But Paul's right. I mean, having a cell wall does limit your ability to change shape rapidly. Makes sense. I mean, cells, some cells, plant cells change shape, right? Sure. Thinking about like you know growth and like Venus flytraps yeah. do it pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah, pretty quickly. That's pretty quick. Cool. <laughs> so, so there was a video on the internet recently of like shoot I should know now maybe this question's not going. There was a like a video of like something that like had like it looked like it was walking and carrying something. But I don't. Did, is this something that came up for you? Are you big on the internet? It was, a, like it was a video of something walking and carrying It was like something. a cellular scale thing, uh-huh. but it looks like it's walking. It had like two, like, it looks like a thing, like, with legs, just like one leg moving, and it's carrying like a big ball, and I forget. I think they said it was like serotonin being carried by some oh. other, but yeah, maybe this was a dead end, because I thought, I thought maybe it was a thing that went viral in the biology comi- community. Yeah, um. see what I did there. <laughs> but no. Uh, did it go viral? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, no. <laughs> that was good, actually. <laughs> so, like, so do you take and record videos? Is that part of, like, do you share those ever, or is mm-hmm. that something that's part of your record? So can we, like, go on your website, maybe? Yeah, you can, like, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, do you have like a top 10, like a favorite video of something that assaulted that was really wild? Uh, <laughs> I have like personal top 10s, okay. but also on my website, I have a thing called Protus Cinema, which I'm trying to collect like YouTube videos of cool unicellular cell, unicellular videos, um, videos of unicellular organisms moving. Okay. Nice. And doing cool things. That sounds cool. Um, I was, I like to talk to nurses. Like I've always been around nurses so I like to ask them about why your body does things that it does and I was asking about the peanut allergy and I was like why would that help your body to just like swell everything up and she was telling me that like it's important to get all the blood to your heart so your body's really trying to save your heart but it's like accidentally killing you while it's doing it like what why is that happening with ourselves like what why <laughs> I think Paul might be a better person to ask. I think you're asking both of the wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> she works on cells, and I work on sea slugs. <laughs> Does that happen in sea slugs? They don't. Can no they one's ever fed reactions? a sea slug a a, um, a peanut. Oh, oh. wow! Well, well, what can they, they, what do they eat? <laughs> well, they they eat um, hydra and and jellyfish and anemone. Mm. See an enemy. Okay. No peanuts, though? No. They don't have <laughs> access to the peanut no, in the yeah. ocean? Yeah. Do, so maybe connecting, do cells have allergies? Is there anything like a cell could take in that would make it like, no, is that is that like too meta of a question? You can die if you have too much water. Like if your cells are, are too um, saturated, you can die from that. Yeah. I have so much water per day. I'm always like pushing it. Like, is this going to be the glass that puts <laughs> you over the edge? Too much water. <laughs> but actually, CRISPR is an example of an uh, an immune ah. response mm-hmm. because so there's this new gene edi- editing technology called CRISPR that was actually this. invented by bacteria to per, when a virus attacks a bacteria, the crisp this this system within the genome of the bacterium takes the genes of the of the virus so that if it ever happens again it will remember and kill it wow so it's like not like an allergy but the underlying the immune response it's like it's not an it's an immune response without an immune system because it's just a cell Mm -hmm. so we have an immune system because we have lots and lots of cells 
Wow. So a single cell organism can't have an immune system right. because oh, okay. it, it's only itself. So wait, can you break that down again for me? Because I'm interested in this. I've heard of CRISPR, and I know that it has made a big change in genetic engineering. Is this outside of both of your fields, actually? or is it Yeah, well, we inside? actually want to u- start using CRISPR. Oh, okay. Um, so it was, there are a lot of things that were found in bacteria and, and other organisms that now are being used in a biotech sort of way. So CRISPR, as I said, is a a tool that bacteria invented and allows genes to be edited directly into their genome, which is a really cool thing, and then used later if that gene ever shows up again as a way to edit it out of the um, of its genome. And we, so scientists now are using CRISPR as a way to edit the genomes of organisms. Okay. So are they using bacteria when they do that? No, no, they're just no, using they're just the trick. They're the just using this the little sequence oh. of DNA that the bacteria invented. Okay. And is that something that might come out of like your research looking at how cells move, like technologies that would mimic the movements of cells or the ways that they Sure. I mean, that's yeah, that's but a, that's not one of the goals. Really. That's not one of the, my personal research <laughs> yeah. goals. But yeah. but it Definitely. also wasn't the research goal of the people that that's discovered right. CRISPR. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of new technologies that come out of the basic research. In fact, I would yeah. argue that more has come out of basic research than applied research because how do you know what's out there until you look? Right. You don't I don't know. think we're smart enough to invent stuff like that. Right. I, I think like that's one of the reasons why I like working on the organisms I do is because they're evolutionary very distant from a lot of heavily studied organisms. And so the biology is just heavy on the ground. There's a lot of stuff that um, we're finding that nobody's seen before. And you, you can't predict what that's going to be because you don't know. There are a lot of things that were found by, stud- by basic research. So, for example, the basic mechanisms of, of cell death. So a natural part of life is that cells die, you wanna get them out of the way. And so there's actually programs with genetic programs for causing a cell to die. It's like a suicide tablet. And these were originally found in, in um, nematodes, I believe. There are other things like um, bacterial rhodopsin. So bacteria can actually transduce light. They can take light and, and make it into an electrical signal. And that's now being used as a tool to turn neurons on and off with light. Wow. It's really interesting. So you were saying, um, well, uh, that that what you're studying is evolutionary, very evolutionarily, very far from a lot of other organisms. Can you mm-hmm. maybe expand on that? Yeah. So I mean, people talk about I don't know. Did you talk about evolution in, in high school and? Yeah, I learned yeah. about evolution. Yeah. Yeah. So did you did you talk about like? Five kingdoms of life, or three domains of life, or what did you? I think we talked about the five kingdoms. I don't know. I remember getting into an argument with somebody about animal, plant, virus, fungus. I remember being really celled organism, like a yeah. I remember being really confused about viruses, and I now sort of understand that viruses are not alive. I mean, I think that's confusing. (laughs) I think you were confused because it's confusing. Right. I feel like my biology teacher was honestly pretty confused too, which maybe like the more I think about that, the more confused I am. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think viruses are confusing. It's hard to tell if they're alive or not. Yeah. But they they can't live on their own. But they need a host. But I mean, I like to think about life as eating and pooping. Right? <laughs> okay. And they don't really do that, so. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Everything else alive eats and poops pretty much. They're like a vampire. Even, even single cell organisms. Oh, yeah. yeah. And some single cell organisms have like a consistent mouth region and a c- consistent region called the anal pore. Oh, they wow. Poop out I had no idea. Mm. Oh. But that's just our desire to categorize the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, why does there need to be a definition for life? It's just these things are. And we're trying to make sense of it. And that's actually a lot of what science does. We're just trying to make sense of the world around us. So viruses exist, cells exist, multicellular animals exist, um, but we want to put them into neat little cubby holes. That's a really good point. I think even the idea of multicellular organisms, right. it's, they it's come and not go. so <laughs> c- clear cut. Mm-hmm. Right, like if you have a lot of single cell, does it, this happens, right? You have like a lot of single cell organisms that clump together. Yeah, and, and there's make also like a thing. Yeah, um, but is you there can a name you for can that? also you can also well, <laughs> I don't know if the, is there is a name there a name for that? For that? Like, an, there, like maybe a, there's multiple names for like that. a fruiting body for a dictyostelium. Dictyostelium, right? Yeah. Slime mold. So slime molds slime have two molds. different parts of li- life 
parts of their life cycle where they're single cell organisms and then at some point they come together, they create this multicellular organism and then there's single cells again. Yeah. But we do too. We have a single cell component of our life and then we have a multicellular component. That single cell component is called sperm or egg. They're, they're living, but we don't call it a human until it's multicellular. And yeah. even then we, just, we have these tremendous arguments about when life starts. Life never ended. Mm. You know, we just go through That's these true. parts of uh, this life cycle. So it's actually, this is again, this actually has political consequences in the fact that we are creating definitions. The real definition is when do you want to um, grant this part of your life cycle um, rights as an agency. agency, right, yeah. or, or just protected by the law. Mm -hmm. I don't think you want to, you know, this Monty Python, every, every sperm <laughs> is, is um, precious. precious. Yeah, precious, every sperm yeah. is precious. <laughs> so so <laughs> I feel like we maybe started to talk about, like, what we learned about in terms of evolution and the, like, the branches of life. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah. So, I, I, uh, in our lifetimes, um, biology has come, kind of gone through this revolutionary um, transition from understanding life in terms of these kingdoms. I think okay. five, like I was taught the five kingdoms. Yeah. I'm sure you were. There were only four when I was in school. Oh, wow. It was before animals? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, to this idea that there's three main domains of life. Oh. Um, and like one of them is bacteria. Okay. Uh, one is archaea, uh, which in many ways um, like visually resemble bacteria. Um, and then eukaryotes, which include the animals, the fungi, um, plants, and single-celled organisms. Um, and so this is kind of, yeah, it's happened in our lifetimes, which is kind of amazing. Um, and it's based on sort of sequence um, DNA sequences oh, and being okay. able to compare organisms based on DNA sequences rather than just what they look like. Uh -huh. the, the important point in that, of course, is that most of the life on Earth is not animal or plant. That's right. Oh. Most of it is our single-celled organisms, okay. um, either bacteria, um, archaea, or single-celled eukaryotes, which are called protists. Okay. Mm -hmm. And those all fall into different domains, too? So th those are the three Genet main three main domains are yeah. eukaryotes, archaea, okay. and bacteria. Yeah. And in eukaryotes, there's a lot of different lineages. Okay. And the relationships between these different lineages are under a hot debate. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, that's a field that's changing pretty quickly as well. Okay. So in your research, you're kind of exploring this fundamental, like, base of where we make these distinctions, or is it? Yeah, so I'm interested in understanding um, how eukaryote cells um, uh, move. Um, and what principles are the same across different eukaryotic species and which are not. Um, and in particular, how this one polymer network, these actin polymers, uh, give rise to movement. And it turns out that uh, that's probably happened multiple times. Oh, okay. Can these like single cellular organisms, do you think they have any type of like emotion which dictates how they behave? I mean, if you think about the emotions that dictate how we behave, right, a lot of it is driving us towards reproduction. Um, and I would say that a lot of their behavior is driving towards reproduction. I don't. I, I mean, they don't have the same sort of neural networks, and so I don't. I don't know if they experience the same sort of emotions we do, but I would think that um, like the, the drive towards reproduction is there. I'm going to make a bold statement: so they don't experience things the way we do, <laughs> because they do not have um, nervous systems, because that requires more than two cells. Yes, um, but. There's a question about emotions, which is really interesting in that we have a kind of a folk understanding of what an emotion is. And we will, like my dog has emotions. That's clear. Does a cow have an emotion? Probably. Does an octopus have an emotion? Probably. But the thing is, what is an emotion? Emotion is a state that changes how you're going to react to stimuli. And I would say if you, if you give a definition, a working definition of an emotion as, as a physiological state that changes the way that you act, then yeah, single cell organisms have emotions. You can actually train single cell organisms. Um, so people have done um, work with a ciliate called stentor. Um, and if it is stimulated a lot, it becomes less uh, reactive. Um, and so it basically, it's learning from its environment and changing its behavior based on um, what's recently happened to mm. it. And yeah, getting at what's like causing it to do that can be complicated, I guess, right? Yeah. But, huh. 
makes sense. So, um, so are all the single cell organisms you study eukaryotes? Mm -hmm. So what yeah. makes something a eukaryote? So a eukaryote is something that has a nucleus. Okay. Um, and I know the this is basic is biology. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really <laughs> deficient in my biology knowledge. I had a biology teacher that didn't like me, and it really drove me away from the science, which is like un really unfortunate because it's a cool science. It is a cool science. Actually, you know, it's worth noting that here at UMass, um, Lynn Margolis was a professor here, and she actually came up with the idea of where nuclei and mitochondria and so forth came from. That they were that they were originally two. And then there became a symbiosis. Mm, yeah, uh, she um, she created Gaia theory, right? That's right. And I remember reading a really good article. Um, I forget if she wrote it or if it was just about her, but it was called like "Sex, Death, and Kiefer." Have you guys heard of this? <laughs> that's one to look up, <laughs> and that's definitely about. I think it's about the origins of death. Um, I don't know if you, this might be really a big divergence, but it was. She was saying that. There was a around. time period when things didn't die, actually, right? I don't know if this is true. In the early origins of life, that things didn't die. Do you know about this, or is this true? So this gets back to what life is. And right. also, we were just talking about asexual organisms. If an organism is asexual, and it's the same organism, when did it die? I mean, mm. death, again, is a, is a construct. We understand death because the individual that we got to know ourselves goes away. But life doesn't ever go away in that sense. Those same molecules get used by other animals and other plants and other single cell organisms. So um, I think that you know any asexual organism, it is the same organism as it goes through time. Mm. I mean, I guess that depends on if you, it, it's the individual cell, right? Alive, or is it the, the genetic content? But you are not the same cells that you were when you were born, yep. except for your brain. Mm. And even then, new cells are added. And many cells die from that party last night and so forth. <laughs> <laughs> but you're still there. So it's the, same, it's the question like, do you ever step in the same river twice? Because the water goes away, and it's different water, same river. So all of the cells in your body have been replaced many times. There's a... Actually, I forgot, there was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher that said if, if you took a ship and you replaced one board at a time and you used those boards to make a new ship and it replicated the old one, which is the original ship? That's Same is true at the molecular question. level, right? Right. Same thing. Same, different proteins over and over again, and it's yet the same cell. So you're saying the real me is somewhere off? In the, no, no. That makes <laughs> yeah, it's a really, lot of sense. It is a lot of, so now could we split life into two <laughs> domains, those that believe in death and those <laughs> that don't? <laughs> well, what about those that believe, that can believe? Oh, okay, yeah. But, I mean... Long pause. No, I'm just thinking about, like, watching individual cells, right? And, and yes, it's true that, like, there's this river of DNA continuity, right, that traces me back to the origin of life and, and you know, you alongside. Um, but at the same time, like, I'm a cell biologist and I watch individual cells. And there's a point when a cell dies. And that's really obvious when you're watching it, right? Mm. right. You can, it can explode, you know? But an organism that can, that, that can um, bud into two organisms, which one is, are they two new organisms or are they continuations of the old organism? I mean, it depends on how you define it, once again. Absolutely. Mm. I would say that watching individual cells, each of those cells can now act autonomously, right? And they behave differently over time. Um, so I would say that they, at that point, then there's two, two different ones. Cell division with single-cell organisms, you end up with two organisms. I agree with that. But you get cell division all over your body all the time. So you have one skin cell, you have two skin cells. One of them can die. Which one, you know, which, is it the original cell? It, it's, it's very, I, I don't think it's cut and dry. And again, this, I think this is an example of humans trying to categorize things. This is life, mm -hmm. it continues. I don't know. I really miss those skin cells from when I was like 20. I feel like I can tell I that they, agree with I can that tell one. these aren't the same skin cells. Actually, they've changed. Bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM.
WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Fedruso. Today I'm joined by guests Dr. Lil Fritz Leylin and Dr. Paul Katz from the biology department at UMass Amherst and comedian Trisha D'Onofrio joining as co-host. Jumping right back into it. So this organism Naglaria that I work with um, that can crawl or swim, there's, there's been for a long time this, this answer that it swims when, it's, when there's danger. It swims to get away. Uh, but that's a very... Uh, that that question is very human centric, mm-hmm. um, and it, the answer, that easy answer, I think, is also based on that's what we would do. Um, huh. But one of the questions I'm interested in is like, w- well, if it's swimming, like it's probably trying to get someplace. Um, and so another sort of way of asking that same question is, where are you going? You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that I think about. I guess I assumed it crawled or swam based on the surroundings, but is that not true? It can crawl or swim in the same like. Yeah, so it's a, it's a pond organism. Oh, okay. so it lives in the bottom oh, of so, ponds. So it always has the option of either one. Mm-hmm. Oh, so why is it doing one versus the other? It could be playing hard to get. <laughs> well, um, so we have evidence that it can have sex based on the uh, genes in its genome and um, sort of the, uh, there's a, a number of different layers of evidence in the DNA, um, but we've never observed it doing it. Oh. Is this a present in Puffer's Pond here in Amherst? Yes. Oh, okay. Why does playing hard to get have to do with sex? I, I would interpret that as avoiding predators, making it hard to get. I'm wondering, is there even, there's probably not gender at this level, though. So a lot of single-celled organisms, they, they have mating types, and some of them can have, like, I think 16 oh, okay. um, different mating types. So that's what you would consider, like, a gender or yeah. sex? Oh, okay. I would. That's cool. I I. That's surprising to me. I Sixteen so, different genders. Yeah. So Imagine what does the number of bathrooms you need? <laughs> what does that look like? Or you could just have an all-gender bathroom. That's right. Solution. That's right. That's right. That's right. Hey, UMass. <laughs> um, do so they look different? Like they're morphologically different, or um, again, it depends on the organism. So some organisms, the different mating types um, look identical. Mm-hmm. Like you, there's no really observable difference between them. And other ones, they look quite different. Um, Okay, cool. I think uh, maybe we want to turn to Dr. Katz and ask him to tell us about our... So my my research actually parallels Lil's in a lot of ways because I'm interested in movement and I'm interested in evolution and the origin of these things. But I work on... And I work on animals that are not standard laboratory animals. Um, I'm, lo- I'm looking at sea slugs, which are specifically nudibranch mollusks, um, and how they swim. And I'm, looked at, I'm looking at the neural circuits that cause them to swim. Uh, they also crawl, so they do oh. both things. Um, in fact, most nudibranchs, there are about 3,000 species of these, and only about 60 of these are known to swim. And again, just like Lil said, this evolved several times. Uh, there are many species that are not closely related that do the same behavior uh, and actually have the same neurons. But the same neurons can be used in different ways to either cause different behaviors or even in the case where the same behavior is being produced and it's the same behavior because the common ancestor produced it, the neurons have switched their functions to cause the behavior to be produced through a different neural mechanism. Mm. The way that animals produce behavior, so you know, when I say produce behavior, I mean they move, right? And our movements are controlled by our nervous system. So when I want to move my arm forward, there are literally cells in my brain that are firing action potentials, nerve impulses, and that those are traveling to my spinal cord and they are traveling out my arm and causing the muscles to contract in a very specific way. So I'm doing that volitionally. When you walk, there are neurons in your spinal cord that alternate left foot, right foot, flexors, extensors. And this actually happens non-volitionally. In other words, you, can, you don't have to think about walking. It just happens. Mm-hmm. So there is a circuit in your spinal cord that does that. And we all know the adage, like a chicken running around without its head, because chickens if you chop its head off, can still run because all of that information is in its spinal cord. So I have a question. So, I mean, are you <coughs> small children learn how to walk, right? And so is this, is this something that you're, you're talking about being sort of automatically um, produced by the body? Is, it, is that something that's learned and then automatically produced or is the potential there? So, mm. so both. Um, 
children actually, before they learn how to walk, you lift them up by their arms and they will do a stepping motion. So they have the intrinsic ability to do it, but humans are born so early in development, we are born helpless, as opposed to a horse pops out and starts running almost immediately, okay? Mm. So it's already there. Humans are born in this helpless situation where they have these huge heads and they can't <laughs> support their bodies, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, they just can't, they can't physically do it. They don't have the muscle mass, they don't have the ability to do it. And that's probably so that we form these bonded units of families to take care of them. Mm. So, but you're saying kids know how to run, they just suck at it. <laughs> they, they suck really bad. <laughs> Their heads are too big. <laughs> I mean, I, I like this horse analogy, right? So. If, that if you take that analogy to the natural conclusion, if we just waited, like if your kid just waited long enough, it should be able to. You like, don't actually teach your kid to, to walk. Mm. But the kid teaches himself. He does it himself. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But there's this trial and error, and it looks like learning. But it's also, mm. but a lot of that has to do with gaining the muscle mass. Mm. You know, the, 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 the physical ability to stand up. And so, yeah, if you, if you don't have long enough limbs and, and you don't have strong enough muscles, yeah, you're going to keep trying and you're going to fail and you're going to keep trying and you're going to fail. So, yeah, it looks like learning. Huh. Wow. This is and, the, and horses just gain the muscle mass in utero? Yeah. Wow. Um, actually, so um, I did a lot of child development stuff for my undergrad in there's a study of mothers in Jamaica, and every time they would change their baby's diaper, they would gently exercise their legs. And so those babies learn to walk way quicker than mothers who just, who, don't, who aren't doing that. But oh. you said learn, but in fact, what they're doing is they're creating more muscle mass yeah, because they're, they're exercising them. They're gently right. exercising their legs every diaper change. Right. So those kids just have more muscle mass. Right. Wow. This is like blowing my mind. Early. I'm like, where? Where is the line of like learning versus just having the door open to fulfill your potential? That's a really, really good and profound question. Yeah. Because there are things, I mean, language, for example. We learn language, but it's, in, it's something that's inherent in us. You take a baby from any culture and you put it in another language situation, it will learn that language within a year. The thing, the reason that I'm working on sea slugs is because they only have about 7,000 neurons in their whole head, whereas you have 10 to the 11th. Okay. So that's, I can count to 7,000. I can't count to 10 with, with 11 zeros after it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. And each of those 10 to the 11th neurons in your head is talking to another 1,000 neurons. So now we've got astronomical numbers of connections. So it's really complex. And we're doing really complex stuff, like, Right now, we're talking and we're listening and we're moving our bodies in really complex ways. Um, and we have emotions and desires and we're thinking about things where we're not even talking about it. And there's lots of things that we can do. Whereas a sea slug is not like that, okay? Sea slugs, um, they find food, they mate, they escape from predators. Uh, they, so they have a very smaller, a much smaller repertoire of behaviors. And the neurons in their heads, in their brains, are individually identifiable. That is, I can go from one animal to another and find the exact same neuron. I can't do that with you. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even if, you know, I can't go from in your brain and find the particular neuron and then go to, to Lil's brain and find the same neuron and then go to Trisha's brain and find the same neuron. I can find classes of neurons if you would let me. Um, I don't think you'd want this. Uh, no, nope, not signing up I'm for good. that. <laughs> right. So, I mean, is that because they're too complex to identify, or that they're just not there? That they're just it's there's a no diff equivalent. It's a different way of developing. Mm -hmm. So, the way that that mammals develop is that there's this proliferation of neurons, and then those neurons then have certain rules about how they get wired up to each other. Whereas in in mollusks, or in gastropod mollusks, which nudibranchs are and snails are, uh, you, the neurons are born very in a very defined way and then they have certain um, potentials as they grow up, as these particular cells grow up. And, and, but as with us, those cells are with the animal for its whole life. And also as with us, there are cells that are neurons, these are nerve cells, that are gained during the course of the animal's life as it grows up, and those have to be incorporated into circuits. And that happens with us too. 
that we gain new neurons that have to be incorporated into circuits. So they have to find out where do you, where do I go in the brain? How do I who do I hook up with? Um, who names like who gets to name this stuff? Because who came up with nudibranch? Oh, that. <laughs> so nudibranch is means naked gill. So oh. whoever finds the what language? I guess Latin. Ooh. I, that's a funny story, though, because nudibranchs are really colorful, and I encourage you to, to look up pictures of them. They're beautiful animals, and there are divers all over the world who take pictures of them, They're like butterfly collectors and bird watchers. Yeah. So they are they're incredible animals, and, and there are groups on Facebook that share pictures of them, and one of them is called um, Nudie Lovers. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so there was a problem with that. <laughs> what do you mean? I don't see a problem. <laughs> <laughs> the reason that they're beautiful is because they feed on hydras and, and corals. That, and they, these are animals that are toxic. You, the reason, like a jellyfish, right? Mm -hmm. They also feed on jellyfish. Um, in fact, there's a species in the Atlantic Ocean called Glaucus atlanticus that feeds on Portuguese man-of-war. And they take the toxin from their prey and then they display it on their bodies. And that's why they're beautiful because they have these colorful things and they're warning other animals, don't eat me because this is not going to taste good. This is going to be lethal for you. So this is a warning signal to other animals. It's called aposematism. When like poison arrow frogs are brightly colored because they're toxic and they, yeah. that's their defense. They're telling other animals, don't eat me because you will die. Wait, so are they not colorful until they've eaten? They always other? eat it. Okay. That's so polite, like very considerate. To <laughs> I just be like, guys, you're going to be sick if you eat me. Like, I was thinking it was nice. like more of like a war paint like display of yes. like, this is all the toxic like, animals that I've taken down. It's kind literally of. like dumping <laughs> Like I'm really beautiful because of like, yeah, like this is my display of all my, I don't know. Well, these are soft-bodied animals, right? <laughs> so they don't have a shell to crawl into. Mm. And they their strategy has been to borrow the toxins of other animals. So like what kinds of things have you learned about sleep states? Right. Or, you know, yeah, so again, we, they have these neurons that we can identify from animal to animal to animal. We can also find that same neuron in different species. And so then we can figure out how those neurons are connected to each other and how they produce these really simple behaviors. And when I say simple, what swimming is for a sea slug, these are just basic tubes. You know, they can be flattened tubes or, or narrowed tubes. And the way that they swim is to flex the whole body left and right or up and down. And they do it o repeatedly, and that's how they get around. So they, but they don't normally get around that way. It depends on the species again. So some, most nudibranchs just crawl. And they do it in a, in a very bizarre way for a large animal. They do it on cilia. So they use the methods that little single-cell organisms are doing. And some mm. of these animals are, uh, some of them can be a, almost a foot long and weigh like a pound. And what they do is they secrete slime, they secrete um, mucus, and they have cilia that then move on that, like little tiny feet, millions of them. Like sperm tails. Yeah. Right. Huh. Yeah, right. So it's very similar to like, it, there is this interesting overlap actually right. between. So that's how all of them crawl. They can also have some muscular crawling, so they can, they can you know, mm. look, look like an inchworm. Right. Um, but then some of them swim by changing the game and, and moving their bodies up and down and, and, and getting up into the water. And some of them do that to get, rid of, get away from predators. A predator can be a starfish. Now, in the land of, I mean, sea slugs are slow. We don't, you can barely see some of them crawling at all because they're going on cilia, for God's sakes, right? And so what, if they're in a tank and we want to know if they're alive, we line them up. And then we come back in the morning, and if any of them aren't on that line anymore, they're alive. That's amazing. I mean, I think, it, I, well, anyway, I get excited about this because the organisms I work with, if you think about them movement, like you can, you have to look in the microscope to see them, but you can see them moving. Like you can watch them move. Yeah, if you looked under a microscope, you would see this animal move, mm -hmm. but because it's six inches long, it doesn't look like it's moving. Mm -hmm. Huh. Whereas this, like, if you think about it in terms of its body, body cell length. length or body length or whatever, right. the, the organisms I work with actually move quite quickly relative right. to sea slugs. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> cool. So they, they basically, some of them escape from predators, and then some of them, like, like the hooded sea slug that you looked at a second ago, um, uh, live on eelgrass. 
and and then if they fall off the grass for some reason they'll swim until they hit another piece of grass and then they <laughs> cling to that grass and then they're feeding on the grass uh, and some of them like that spanish shawl um, just swim for fun as far as we can tell. I have no idea why it swims, but you find it down in um, California in tide pools, and it'll just be swimming, and I don't know why it swims. Oh, it's because they're in California. I know, right? They're, <laughs> they're trying to catch like, the next wave. They're just <laughs> I don't chill. know what it is. Pink <laughs> Just enjoying life. <laughs> so, but what we found is that, um, as I said before, the same neuron in a different species is doing something different, hmm. which is really bizarre if you think about how the way evolution is shaping behavior and you know we look at other mammals and we say okay how do they use their brains and we make certain assumptions about how they work based on what we learned in one species to the other and what our work is saying you got that you have to be cautious about that because it means that even though it's the same um, in the sense that they they this or this part comes from a di from a common ancestor, it can be used differently. Mm -hmm. Now we all know this when it comes to external body morphology. For example, we have a hand and all mammals have the same bones that are in our hands, but in some species it's turned into a horse hoof and in some species it's turned into a, a, a cow hoof. <laughs> um, in, some, in, in dogs it's a paw um, and in uh, ape it's a, it's a hand. Right. Mm -hmm. And they have a, but apes also have grasping feet that we don't have. So there are differences for the same parts of the body. In a bat, it's a wing. Mm -hmm. Right. So the fingers of a, of a bat hand are forming a wing. So but it has all the same bones. But it has all the same wow. bones that we do. Wait, so horses have all the finger bones? They've they actually all, like, degenerated some. So they're, they're walking on one finger. Oh, and that's others, so scary. But if you go back and, yeah, they can break. <laughs> if it's they like break a, a big nail, toenail. It is. That's what their hoof is, a big <laughs> toenail. But if you look back, again, this it's back to evolution. If you look at the fossils of horses, you can see progressive loss of bones. Hmm. So that the earliest horses had five digits. Wow. And again, this, this happens over and over again in evolution. So a, a, a whale fin has bones in it that are hand bones, right? But they don't have foot bones. So the, the pelvis is degenerated so that their tail is a tail. You know, their flukes are a tail, but they don't have legs. But the earliest whale fossils did have legs. Wow. The question I have for all of you, if you could give yourself one evolutionary change just for like a day to try it out which one would you want a prehensile tail okay. <laughs> no hesitation there. Is that like the monkey tail yeah that you can wrap? it's Why? so hard to find clothes though that's true <laughs> it's, it's a day just for a day you don't even have to wear anything for the day um it's a day no one will remember so what would you do with it i don't know actually where would you go with your tail uh so this is a question that I had been asked before at That's a party. That's why she it's, had it right away. Well, no, somebody else answered <laughs> prehensile tail, and I was like, that is an amazing answer. Because it's like, it's an extra limb. It can do That's things true. that my hands can't do. Um, I, I, I mean, I guess another obvious answer would be wings so you could fly, but right. that doesn't come to mind so quickly. Very cool. How about you? I'm going to steal the wing answer. You're going <laughs> to do a wing, and where would you fly? Where would I fly? Yeah. Oh my God, just up. Have you ever just gone up? hang gliding? <laughs> It's such an amazing experience. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. I saw Jurassic Park, so I'm not trying to go like that. But um, but I would like to try it one day. Um, Laura, how about you? Well, I definitely thought of wings. And, I mean, all of these sound great. But I'm going to go with gills. Mm. I love it, Laura. Where would you go with your gills? Just like the same place I normally go, Puffer's Pond, but I would go deeper. <laughs> nice. I'd be like, what the hell is down here? Yeah, <laughs> you could just be doing? on the You'd bottom. You'd find dirt. <laughs> that would be amazing. I'd find my old pair of glasses that I lost in there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I'd probably try take a trip to the ocean, actually. I'd probably, I'd probably go bigger with my gills. <laughs> also, just like, you're going pretty small here. <laughs> nice. You could go big. Um, I actually would go... I would want, like, the mermaid tail situation. I'd want to be Ariel for the day. I would dress like it. I'd dye my hair <laughs> red for the day and, like, have the whole thing. I think that would be so cool. So, uh, Paul, is there anything that about your research that you want to talk about that hasn't come up? There's, 
there's a lot that hasn't come up. Um, <laughs> we have we have a lot of projects going on in the lab. Um, one of the things that I'm trying to do right now is, since they only have seven seven thousand neurons, is to actually we're working on a new species that we haven't worked on before that we can grow in the lab so that we don't have to have divers collect them for us in the West Coast. And we can get them at varying sizes and developmental stages. So we want to know the identity of every single neuron and how every single neuron is connected. So we want to create a full brain connectome. So like the genome is all of the genes in your, in your cells. The connectome would be all of the connections in your brain. And this is a this is a something that has been that is being tried in many many organisms right now. It's, um, you know specifically laboratory animal that that are being used. Um, but because we have seven thousand in these species, I think we have a chance to actually get a good handle on it. Mm. We also want to know all of the genes that are expressed in each of these neurons because that helps form who they are and how they work. Uh, and I'd like to know how those circuits got to where they are. So we'd like to trace the development of those circuits and say, when do they first make their connections? Uh, how do they, how is, why is this species different than this species? At what point during development do they differ from each other? Mm. Is there a concern about the fact that you're observing them in a lab and it's different from their natural environment or? Well, uh, a sea slug will grow up to be a sea slug. It's never going to turn into an octopus <laughs> or a dog. Yeah. Uh, so I think that there are certain developmental aspects that are going to be the same. <coughs> um, the particular, yeah, I don't, I don't have the problem. It's actually, it, it makes things easier from an experimental point of view because the other animals are all wild caught and they exhibit all sorts of variation from animal to animal because you um, don't know their history yeah. um, and you don't know their genetics and their family and so forth. So we have found individual differences between animals within a species that don't impact its behavior, but if you pushed it, so for example, we've we found that some animals are not susceptible to having a major neural pathway cut, they still produce the behavior, whereas other animals, that stops it from working. Oh. And we found the reason for that, because they only have a small number of neurons, and some the circuits that we're working on actually contain as few as four neurons that produce these behaviors. So it's really, really simple. So we can control it. And what we've done is we can look at these different species and say, well, this animal is producing this left-right body movement with these four neurons, and this one's using these six neurons. And we can block the connections between the neurons with a, with a drug, a poison, um, curare, uh, and then give it the, syn the synapses of the other species using um, a technique where we put electrodes into the neurons in the brain and then rewire them through the computer. So oh, wow. Yeah. So you're computer programming the brains of these We're making slugs, cyborg slugs. Oh, wow. wow. So half, half slug, half computer. I was starting to wonder if, if you were like doing brain surgery on them or how are you yeah, making these changes. But wow. Well, yeah, we do brain surgery all the time. Wow. <laughs> okay, so we're ready for the last segment of our show, which is a game that I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. Um, and the point of this game is basically that, you know, in the sciences, we often use acronyms to talk about something we're all really familiar with in our subfields, but that can be alienating to people who maybe aren't as familiar with them. So the way the game works is that my guests have provided me with some acronyms from their field, and we're going to have Trisha try to guess what the acronyms mean, and then our guests will jump in and tell us what they actually mean. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> so our first acronym is PCR. Personal cycle, personal cycle of remission. No. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it, I thought I got that one. <laughs> it stands for polymerase chain reaction, um, oh. and it's a technique we use in the lab every day uh, to make more of a certain piece of DNA. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. I'm learning Wait, so DNA much. is another one, though. Was that one? <laughs> We've already done that on a previous okay. show. And actually, the comedian got it, amazingly. Isn't it deoxoribonucleic acid Okay, you wanted to show off your knowledge <laughs> there. Yeah, and, I did. You know, that's what impressive. Yeah, I didn't know that. My my hist my bio teacher will be proud. Miss Saberic, this is a shout-out for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our next acronym is GFP. GFP? Mm-hmm. Gigantic. 
F word. <laughs> <laughs> Polymer. <laughs> it stands for green fluorescent protein. I was close. <laughs> so is this an important protein, or is this for like is this like the chlorophyll and stuff in the plant cell? So it comes from uh, organisms that fluoresce naturally, um, cool. so they they glow. Actually, jellyfish. Yes, that's oh. right, jellyfish. Um, and pregnant women. They glow. <laughs> they glow, but not literally. Oh, I thought you said jellyfish in pregnant women. I was like, wow, this is a story I do not know. <laughs> um, anyway, and so we put them on other proteins, and so we can actually see where they are. Because the, now oh. they're connected, um, so where the green is, is where your protein is. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, your next acronym, acronym is FACS. F-A-C-S. F-A-C-S. Functional. Automatic. I feel like I'm in Greece. Hadromatic. <laughs> okay. Functional automatic. Um, continuous supply. Ooh. <laughs> I want what that is. <laughs> it actually stands for uh, fluorescence activated cell sorting. More fluorescence? More fluorescence. I should have guessed fluorescence. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but in this case, because um, we can make certain cells uh, glow, you uh, can actually isolate them. So uh, it's a machine that puts a single cell in a droplet. Cool. Um, and then it can detect if it's fluorescent or not or how fluorescent it oh, is. Oh, cool. Um, and then it can actually move it into a different tube. So you can actually sort individual cells. I love it. Oh, really That's cool. That's awesome. Nice use of natural, <laughs> naturally occurring <laughs> fluorescence. Mm-hmm. Or we put it in there, right? We use our uh, PCR to put GFP on a thing. And there you go. It I swear these are all inappropriate innuendos. I swear. <laughs> Do you have conversations like, like this where you're like, oh, the PCR and the GFP are? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the, the standard thing. It's, it's a thing. Nice. <laughs> okay. And maybe we'll do one more acronym. Um, HRP. Hmm. Hydraulic Resistant Polyphase. <laughs> There's no way that anybody would get it without knowing it. That's the problem <laughs> with this game. It stands for it's horse radish peroxidase. Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. It's so it's a it's an enzyme. <laughs> Are you kidding? It's an enzyme that comes from a horseradish. And I thought it was appropriate because Passover is coming up and so people are eating horseradish. Uh, but it's an enzyme really? that is used in neuroscience because you can you can make you can in actually inject that into neurons and then turn it black with a with a reaction and that allows you to see the neuron one of the things that when you're studying the brain is that there's all these neurons there and they don't you can't it's like looking at at you can't see them individually because there's just a bunch of gray right or white Mm -hmm. and so you have to separate them and so you have to find something to contrast each neuron from the other neurons and so hrp is a technique that's been used for decades to do that there are new ones so like GFP. The connection. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I have an HRP story. Ooh. Okay. It's very short. Tell us so, why. Uh, I was working in a plant lab, uh, and I was working on uh, something in, a, in turnip. Um, and so I did a, a process called a Western blot. But basically, you can um, lay out on a piece of paper individual proteins. And one of the common ways to look for your protein is using this horseradish peroxidase. And so I did this, and this, there's just a screaming signal everywhere. And it's because turnip is related to horseradish, and it was just Uh, naturally there. It was like one of those moments, uh, like, yes, think about the biology. They seem like the same thing, though, in a salad. A turnip Mm -hmm. and a radish? Yeah. Yeah. Are they the same? Horseradish? Yeah. They're both root vegetables. Yeah. What does a horse have to do with a radish? How did he get it? I don't know where that name got from. I imagine it has to do with the shape of something. I like Passover season because I love fresh horseradish. I'm like a weirdly into horseradish. I'm not Jewish even, um, but I do have a lot of Jewish friends that have gone to like Passover ceremonies and I know the horseradish is used, but I'm just like, ah, oh, fresh horseradish is available at this time of year. But I feel almost guilty how much I enjoy it because it represents the bitterness of enslavement. See, actually, see, that's right? very oh. Jewish if you feel guilty about that too. <laughs> okay. I'm not yeah. Jewish, but everyone um, asked me if I... Yeah, I get that too. Uh, yeah, actually, I like to say I'm one of the mistakenly chosen people. But that's that's, the, very that's probably the Italian Jewish um, thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, Trisha and Will and Paul.
Thanks Bye. a lot. This was really Thank fun. You. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great getting to know you guys. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today were Dr. Lillian fritz Leyland and Dr. Paul Katz from the biology department. My co-host was comedian Trisha D'Onofrio. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Support for online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is provided by the Emmerich Lab in the Polymer Science Department. You can check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook or SoundCloud or listen on iTunes. Please stick around for WMUA News coming right up.